0: You look over in the sky and you see these four dots and there's a rumbling in the air and they're moving at an incredible speed. And, and your eyes are fixated on the sky and those, those dots get closer and closer. And as they come by, these F-A-18 Hornet jets come by at about 400 miles an hour. Now, they can get up to 700 miles an hour, and sometimes. But during the during the Blue Angels show, they they only the, the when they fly in the diamond formation, the four of them tend to only go about 400 miles an hour. Only 400 miles an hour. It was Friday. It was Friday of this week, and some of you have gone to the air show. We were lucky enough to have somebody who let us come to the what we were told was going to be the dry run of the show. And it literally was the dry run because it didn't rain um, on Friday. And so we, we got there Friday and we were in an area and we were, on a, we were watching and it was absolutely fascinating. These jets will fly 400 miles an hour, 18 inches apart from each other. 27 men have died over the years as pilots of, these, uh, of, of the Blue Angels, but they're absolutely fascinating. The other two, they go up in groups of six. There's six blue angels and four of them tend to fly together a little slower. And then there's the two that go faster and they do, they do the kind of the special things. Like there's one time where they went in front and one was flying upside down and one was flying right side up and they went in front of you you think, how fast are we going here? It's just absolutely fascinating. Well, it was a long day because it started at 11 o'clock. The Blue Angels don't come on until about four. And so we watched all sorts of things. And it was pretty amazing. I mean, it's not like we were watching, you know, paint dry. We were watching planes go back and forth. But it was, it, was, it had gotten to be a long day. And it was Skylar, myself, and Dale. And we were there and Skylar was getting a little tired. It was hot. And then it was time for the Blue Angels. And everybody got excited. But then something odd happened. Schuyler started getting upset, wanting to know to make sure that I was taking pictures. And so uh, I'd say, Schuyler, don't worry. Just, just look, here they come. And he'd go, are you taking a picture? Are you taking pictures? And I said, don't worry about the pictures. Just watch, watch. And he, and he, was, and he would, instead, instead of watching these jets go by, he was looking at me saying, take pictures, take pictures. And so I, was just, I started just holding my phone up there. So we'd quit paying attention to, to the future Pictures he would never really look at, because he was missing the present. He was missing the moment. I mean, these jets were coming by eighteen inches apart, four hundred miles an hour, and not crashing. And, they, and then they would then they would shoot off together, and they would they, they have blue smoke that comes out. It's part of how they get their name, the Blue Angels. That I mean, it's just it's it's poetry. I mean, if you can imagine dancing at four hundred miles an hour in in jets, you can imagine the Blue Angel show. It was fascinating. But the sad moment for me, I actually got frustrated with my son, missed it because he was anxious about whether or not he would get pictures of it. Now, it's been about 48 hours since we went, and he hasn't asked to see one of those pictures. Hmm. Now, what does that have to do with our text today talking about worry? Well, I'm going to suggest, yes to Seth did such a good job talking about worry last week. I'm going to look at it from a little bit different perspective. There's something that you'll see in this text that is really pretty fascinating about the way Jesus seems to invite us, when you think about anxiety, to live in the present, and that that's going to do something different with anxiety than you might think. And so we're going to look at this passage in a real practical way. There's probably Hundreds of things you can get from this incredible sermon given on a mountainside 2,000 years ago. But we're gonna to try to think of it from, our, from that perspective and see if what we can learn today about worry and anxiety, which seems to be out of control in our culture and in my life as well. I kind of worried about the sermon today. Having said that, before we look at the word of God, before we talk about God, let's talk to him Let's pray together, dear Father. Thank you, um, thank you for your word. Thank you that we come here. Father, forgive us. We spend so much of our time, even in this place, not thinking about this present moment of worship, but instead thinking about our what we're going to have for lunch and. What might've been different about the service or what could have just been done differently in this time? And Father, we, we just get lost in things that don't seem to matter. Sometimes we get caught in our past and our shame. Sometimes we get caught in the future and our anxieties. But Father, we know we can't worship or love in the future in the past. We can only do that in the present. So if you would help us first be present in this moment at this time, you're always present. We just don't discern it. So have us discern your presence with us this day. Father, you know the people in this room that struggle with obsessive compulsive behavior. You know the people in this room that struggle with PTSD and with anxiety disorders and phobias and fears and, well, you know, everybody in this room. So would you meet us with your word and your spirit this morning? Would you have us be present as we look at your word together. Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? And for, the, for everyone, would you use it for your glory and for your purposes to equip us we pray in the powerful, powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. What I'd like us to do first is look at the passage together. Now, the passage we're looking at together is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can, if, if you're capable, if you're, if you're comfortable to do so, would you stand as we read the word of God together? If you can't stand or you're holding a child or something, that's okay. Just We're in the sixth chapter of Matthew. Imagine you're on the side of a hill with other people and, and the master teacher is teaching you. Now listen to his words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink or what you, what, or, nor about your body. What you will put on it is not life more than food and body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which one of you being anxious can add a single hour to your life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, that is, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you little faith! Therefore, do not be anxious saying, "What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows what you need. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. therefore. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day it is own's trouble. That God bless the reading of his holy word, you may be seated. There's a lot of things to notice in that passage. Seth did a really good job talking about those. We're going to look at two things We're gonna, that I think come out of that passage. One is the idea of a switch in our perspective. And that's, and the second, is the idea of living in the present. And I think if you got both of those out of this passage, I think you would live with your anxiety different. And isn't that something we'd really like to do? You know, our brain kinda has two different modes. It has a problem-solving mode and it has a contemplative mode. The problem-solving mode is what you're in most of the time. That's when you're thinking about, uh, how are you going to fix this? You're, you're analyzing everything. You're you're paying attention to things. You're, uh, you're pulling from your past. What have I learned from the past? You're pulling, you're thinking about the future, what may happen here. And that's your problem-solving mode. And, and that's an incredible gift God's given you. It, it's a wonderful way that we think. And and it's really helpful. It's really helpful. I mean, it's in the problem-solving mode, you can design a building, but you can also imagine a world that you could jump off that building and kill yourself. I mean, there's something dangerous if all we do is spend our lives in that problem-solving mode. And the Bible would teach that there's also a contemplative mode that, that invites you to live in the present, to be still and know that I am God, to to, to be contemplative and to, and to live in the present tense. Because you can't love except for in the present tense. What, what does it say? The th- these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Faith is the idea that my past won't destroy me. Faith is the idea that there's nothing in my past that keeps me from being able to be redeemed by God. Well, that's refreshing to know. Hope is the idea that my future is in his hands and I can, but hope is future-based. But love is present tense-based. And then he says the greatest of these is love. Now, I spend most of my time in what I would call problem-solving mode instead of contemplative mode. Our society is very problem-solving mode oriented. But to to deal with your anxiety, to deal with your faith, to deal with your relationships, to deal with your soul, you can't always live in that problem-solving mode. I think you see that in this text. Notice the way Jesus changes the tense in his conversation. Either Jesus could not pass a fifth grade grammar class or he's being very purposeful with his grammar. Now, I would suggest that, that he knows grammar pretty well. And so he says, don't focus on what, I mean, look at the text. Don't focus on, sorry, um, what will you eat? What will you drink? What will you put on your body? Those are all future tense. And then he says, look at the birds of the field. Now, if you can imagine, Jesus is on a hillside and, they're, and, he's, and he's talking to them about, about things they worry about, very commonplace things they worry about. You and I don't worry that much about our food, our drink, or our clothes. I did ask somebody if this matched earlier today. Um, And they said, yes, so if it doesn't, don't tell me, it's okay. Um, but, But the people of the day, the people on that mountainside, they would worry about what they would eat. Those were the common things they would worry about. For you, it might be our economy, it might be your job, it might be your relationships, it might be Uh, the state of our society, whatever the common things you would worry about, that's what Jesus was speaking of. And so he's in the future tense. What will you wear? What will you drink? What will you eat? And then he goes from future and he says, look. And since he's outside, there probably were birds around. Look at the birds. From future to present. And he does it again. There's there's three imperatives in this, three present tense imperatives in this text, meaning present tense of an ongoing, present tense that's happening right now and an ongoing. And it's look, consider, and seek. Those three words are, are the imperative present tense words that Jesus uses to take us from don't worry and I'll give you examples of things out there. Look at the birds. Don't worry. Consider the flowers. There would have been flowers all around. Don't worry. Seek God, his righteousness. Everything else will be added to you. Three imperatives that take you from, um, from a future sense to a present sense. You know, there's a psychologist by the name of Dan Siegel. I kind of like his writing. He's probably not a believer, but he's a pretty smart dude. And he has a book, a recent book came out called "Aware." And what he says is that one of those important things to, to be a healthy, psychologically hygienic, to be a healthy person psychologically, is you need to be awa- you need to have attention awareness, and then intentionality. So what he would suggest is, first, you need attention to make it through life. Well, have you ever noticed that when you, like, we bought a a red Mazda CX-5 a few years ago, and I didn't think there were any of them on the road. I thought we were buying a unique car until we bought it. And all of a sudden, these cars are coming out of the woodwork. All of a sudden, you know, it's like, what, what, were they hiding in caves? And now, what, did, did we start a trend? No, there are not more Mazdas on the road than there were the day before I bought them, other than just that one. But my attention was there. And because my attention was there, I noticed it. So the first thing we're supposed to do, according to Siegel, is we're supposed to have attention. And where attention goes, it creates awareness. Awareness is that idea of what can I learn from what I see? And from awareness, creates intentionality. I will live differently. I will do something when I am attuned, learned from that attunement, and then I will act intently. Well, what a smart neuropsychologist he is. But he's a little about two thousand years late on the idea. Because those are the same basic ideas of Jesus saying, look, consider, and seek. It's a it's a way of of understanding the world you live in. Now, the first thing I want you to understand about this passage is that if we understand it correctly, it'll change our perspective a little bit. It'll change our perspective because Jesus in his his examples does not use spiritual examples or sacred examples. And he uses very normal everyday examples of birds and flowers and clothes and food. I think if you understand that, when Jesus is talking about anxiety, I think it's important that we understand that we need to have the perspective of Jesus in our present everyday situations. That every moment is holy. Every moment is sacred. About six weeks ago, somebody gave me a book called Every Moment Holy. And I have been obnoxious with my family. Um, And at first I was mocking the book. and first I was kind of making fun of it. Um, We have my my lovely uh, daughter-in-law and son, he's not lovely, but he's a great guy. and they're incredibly beautiful, most gifted child in the the world, live in our home. And Cedar is just wonderful. But I wanna tell you, and they're here, so I think I'm gonna get in trouble when I say this. I've not changed a diaper yet. Because as a grandparent, I can just come in and go, hey Cedar, how are you doing Cedar? And then when he needs a diaper change, I just walk away. (laughs) But when someone gave me this book, when somebody gave me this book, I noticed that it had a liturgy in it. And the name of the book is Every Moment Holy. And, and liturgies have not been a part of my tradition. But liturgies are just planned prayers that are supposed to help you be present in the moment of... And, and, you know, and in that moment, and they're, they're thought out prayers to God about what's happening. But they have some of the craziest liturgies in there. They have a liturgy about starting a new book and a liturgy about... You know, road rage, and and it's like, my goodness. Well, they have a liturgy for changing diapers. And so I decided one day to read that to Breland while she was changing a diaper. (laughs) What a good grandfather I am. And you know, I struggle with cynicism as I get older. And so when I first saw this book, I guess I was a little cynical but as you get older, you can either go towards cynicism or vulnerability. And somewhere in the middle of this, you'll shift from cynicism, and this is silly, to realizing the sacredness of the moment. Listen to this, liturgy for changing diapers. Heavenly Father, in such a menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, that I would remember this truth, that my unseen labors are not lost. For it is these repeated acts of small sacrifice that like bright ragged patches are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that will swaddle this child. I'm not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I'm tending to to a budding heart that rooted early in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction knowing itself as both a receptacle and a receiver of heavenly grace. So this little act of diapering, though it's a form of drudgery, might be better described as one of those 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfish love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessity. Put a line. Take this unremarkable act of necessity, O Christ, that it in your economy multitude, may be multiplied into the greatest outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment in the incremental advancement of your kingdom across generations. Almost finished with this liturgy, you could change a diaper by now. Listen to the last part of this. Open my eyes that I might see this act for what it is from the fixed vantage point of eternity, O Lord. How the changing of a diaper might sit upstream to the changing of a heart. And how the changing of a heart might sit upstream to the changing of the world. All of a sudden, that moment that is mundane and doesn't matter, and seems horrible that i've invo- avoided for 8 months successfully there's a sacred in that moment there's something sacred in that moment Do you understand that if you want to deal with your anxiety you have to understand that if you 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 can't understand the sacredness of life in the future or in the pre- in the past you can only understand the sacredness in the moment And there is no, I used to see the world as their sacred things and unsacred things. That's not what the Bible would teach. The Bible would teach that everything is sacred or desecrated. That everything is either is sacred, but has been marred by man. Or it is sacred still. And and, and so it's, so there's an opportunity for your life and your moments to matter. But you can only do that. You can only give that perspective if you live in the present because you can't worship in the future. One of the worst things about seminary is that when people sometimes came to seminary, when I was a professor there, they would worship and they'd be in the present because they learned so much on how to observe things and how to plan services and, and how to understand all the theology they would begin to no longer enjoy the presence of the service. They were seeing the worship as a problem to solve instead of in the contemplative way that it's invited to be seen. And when you're in the problem to solve mode in your mind, you're more susceptible to anxiety, depression, shame, and guilt. The first thing I want you to notice is that I think God is, I think Jesus in his teaching is trying to change your perspective. Remember it said in there that he knows what you need. And these were the basic needs of these people. You know, most of the world, their whole day is spending out, finding out how much, finding water and food. So he was saying in your basics of needs, he, he's not saying those needs aren't important. I don't know about those. He's saying, oh, Don't live there, live, look, consider, seek. And in that, you'll live differently. You'll live in the present. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that it's always wrong to live in the past. Matter of fact, you should be reflective about your past. You should have some awareness of your past. It's not wrong to think about your future. Of course, you're going to think about your future. That's wise. But, but if you do that the whole time, you will miss the present. You know, the word look that's used in this passage is used 11 times in the New Testament. Six times, it's Jesus saying he saw someone and he looked and he saw them the idea that someone wants to be seen. That's a present tense. Do you see me? Have you ever been with somebody, maybe even in a romantic moment, maybe you're at a romantic dinner and they're not really with you? They're not present? They're they're disconnected? They're not in that contemplative place. They're in a a different place. That That word could be translated noticing someone or... Um, to look on, to observe in a fixed way, to discern clearly, to, be, to behold, to gaze and look upon. Second word he uses is consider. That word in Greek could be translated to learn thoroughly, to note carefully, to learn, pay attention to the present, to look, attend And then live in it, and notice and learn. And then last, seek. Seek is really a word of passion. It's a it's an affinity. A seek. It's a it's 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 to worship. It's to have deep desire to inquire, to require, to want. And it's a it's a present tense seeking with passion. So Jesus, when he tells you, "Don't worry." He doesn't just say, don't worry, be happy. He says, don't worry, you're in the the future. Be in the present. Look. Don't worry, be in the present. Learn in the present. What do you see? Oh, don't worry. Seek me in the middle of all of this anxiety or struggle or sorrow or fear because I'm there. That'll change your anxiety. So... I want you to remember that the idea of perspective is changed when you um, when when you see this uh, when you see this idea. So, but not only is perspective changed, just I want you to remember that the idea of being present is the idea of that that's where God will do His work in your life. Um, before our time gets away from us, there's so much to be said. I do wanna mention that I've stolen this entire sermon from an ex-student of mine who was always smarter than me. Um, And I need to say his name since so much of the material says Ben Cant, he's a pastor now in Orlando. And if he heard this sermon, he'd go, do you ever have any original ideas, Cofield? I knew he was smarter than me when he was my student, but I just need to, for integrity's sake, mention that some of this material was his. But It's really helped me. It's really changed me as I thought through that. So let's just give some real practical things quickly. And and I've only got a couple minutes, so kind of listen fast and listen quick. Um, What what are some practical things you could do with this? You know what the desert fathers used to do? They used to have a a prayer. Some people call it the Jesus prayer. Now, I just want to tell you that there's a, in the psychological world, they're really into mindfulness. And mindfulness is this idea that I'm going to empty myself and pay attention to my breathing and myself, and I'm going to center myself. That's not a bad thing. There's a lot of research that says it's really helpful. But here's what's interesting. Way before there was psychology, there were these desert fathers that used to think of that breath, because in the Bible it says that when God created man and woman, he gave them the breath. And in the, in the, in the idea of the breath is the idea of the spirit of God throughout the Bible. When Jesus died on the cross, it said, and he gave his last breath. That's the idea of the spirit of God. And the Jesus prayer used to, would be these old desert fathers would practice a Jesus prayer. This is all it was. Is they would say, breathe in, O Jesus. Have mercy on me. Lord Jesus. Have mercy on me. Try that. Breathe in when I say Lord Jesus. Breathe out when I say, have mercy on me, try that. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. The neuropsychologists tell you that you just relaxed yourself. We were doing that way before mindfulness came along. Mindfulness says you empty yourself of self. We would say that no, that's contemplative is to fill ourselves with the sense of God's spirit in us and out. And so one thing you can do, I've been doing that this week. When I was studying for this, I saw this and became fascinated with it. And this week, I've been, I've been trying to do the Jesus prayer regularly. And what's gonna happen, I think, if I keep doing it, is whenever I notice my breathing, I'm gonna remember, Lord Jesus, mercy on me. And what happens when you start to get anxious? Breathing is up. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. That's just a practical thing you can do to kind of be in the present with God. Second thing I might suggest is, um, is a book called Practicing His Presence, an old classic book by a person by the name of Brother Lawrence. And he, he and another guy decided we we're gonna live our lives trying to figure out that, that you know, focusing on the presence of God wherever we are. It's a fascinating book. It's just their, their mem- memoir of how they try to do that. It's an easy read. It's an old, old classic Christian book called Practicing Presence, just an opportunity. Third thing I would suggest, the place that I got that liturgy from is a book called uh, Every Moment Holy, and I, I just would recommend it. I, 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 liturgy is not a part of our tradition much in the Presbyterian world, but, and so I'm not suggesting that you become somebody who's super involved in liturgy necessarily. It's just they're just prayers to help remind you that ordinary is not ordinary, that every moment is holy. And the last thing I would like to suggest that, uh, and I don't wanna start a new program or a five-step plan, but on every table outside around uh, the church today, there's a sign-up sheet. If you'd like to become a part of a learning community that would meet for four weeks and do a deep dive in anxiety. And if nobody signs up, I won't be anxious, it'll be fine. If we have, well, we'll try to make the groups if there's if there's enough people, no more than 20 per group, and it might take us six months to get through everybody. Or nobody signs up and I'll just have pizza and it'll be fine. But I didn't want to do another program or something you just felt obligated to do. It's not gonna be on our website, it's not gonna be a sign-up sheet. It's just if, if God moves you in this moment, in this present moment in the present moment in this room, if the spirit of God moves you to say, you know, I need to be a part of a learning community to think about anxiety from a biblical perspective. And you think that's something I'd really, I'm moved in the presence to do that. There's something you can do. It's a next step for you. Um, Why contemplative? And we're almost finished. Why contemplative? because contemplative gives you space between the sensation and the perception. Something happens to you and you respond. That's how God built us. The amygdala system, that's what happens. We respond quickly. But if you live in the contemplative space, it gives you space between what happens and how you respond. And that space, that's what counselors try to develop. That's what prayer tries to develop. Space between what happens and how you respond because nobody can ultimately take away the way you respond And the gospel goes deep enough in us to change and give us that space in the present to act differently. That's why you need to be contemplative and not reactive and understand the story of your life so that you can have a a shift in the way that you live with your anxiety and your fears and your shame and your depression. Something to think about. Um, I think it's practical I think God wants to invite you to live in the present. I think you'll meet him in the present and you'll find him almost to be overwhelmingly powerful and amazing.